I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 2 as we continue our study in the, that we've just started last week uh, in the book of Psalms, our series. And um, you have notes in your worship folder, so I invite you to follow along with where we're going in the sermon. So I read recently about a, a young woman who wanted to go to college, and one of the colleges that she really wanted to attend, her heart sank when she read on the application of this school, Are You a Leader? And she wanted to be, she knew she needed to be honest, and so she said, no, I'm not a leader. And she just said, well, I know I'm not going to make that cut from that college. But to her surprise, she received a letter, and the letter said this, Dear Sarah, a study of all the applications we have received reveals that this year our college will have 1,000 452 new leaders. We're accepting you because we feel it's important they have at least one follower. (laughs) You know, a lot of people think they're leaders, uh, but there is only one who is in charge of the universe, and that is the Lord our God. Uh, God has installed his king, and that king is Jesus. Uh, 2,000 years ago, as we know, he, he presented himself as Israel's king on that Palm Sunday, and the people rejected him. The question for us this morning, as we get into Psalm 2 in particular, is how are you going to respond to God's rule in your life? How are you going to respond to the lordship of Christ? Are you going to fight it, or are you going to welcome it? Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Uh, As prophet, he reveals himself to us by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. As, As priest, he offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, what we just celebrated. And uh, he's in heaven. He never stops making intercession for us. And you have this on your outline as king Uh, Jesus is the king in that he rules his kingdom. And in ruling us, his servants, he also defends us and will conquer all of his and our enemies. Um, So the message of Psalm 2, again on your outline, is that God has decisively set his son on the throne to end this world's rebellion. The 12 uh, Messianic Psalms are Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. And uh, just a reminder, Jesus in Luke 24 said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then in Acts 4.25, we don't learn from this Psalm that David is the author, But we learn this from the apostles. Uh, In Acts 4.25, the apostles said, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote verse one of Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So Psalm two is really, um, it's it's, I think a great representation of the messianic Psalms that there are. And like most of the Psalms and many prophecies, uh, you can read them on two levels. 
They have an immediate historical context. Uh, in this case, the coronation of someone, in all likelihood, David. But they also have an ultimate context to the greater David, uh, the greater king, a greater king than this king, and that is King Jesus. Um, so in referring to the greater David, the greater, the greater David, the greater king, Jesus, uh, one commentator says there are voices in this psalm that we need to listen to. So that's kind of be our outline as we read it. But let's read the psalm together. I'll, I'll read and follow along in your Bibles. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word for us today. So the first voice is the voice of the nations. And they say, we hate the king. We begin with the nations, that's all of us in rebellion against God. And the psalmist is amazed here that anyone would be foolish enough to fight against God. Look at verses one and two again. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, David didn't expect an answer to this question. Uh, it's, it's basically, a, it's a rhetorical question. Because there is no reply. He was just in shock that, that he was just an expression of amazement. That's all he had here. Um, think about it. From the Tower of Babel to the crucifixion of Christ, the Bible tells us about humanity's foolishness. And the, the rebellion it's the, that we have against the creator is just futile. The kings form a conspiracy against what the Lord has established for our own good. Look at verse three. Let us break the chains and throw off their shackles. Again, the picture here is of a raging animal that's trying to break free from the cords that are around its body. But the attempt, again, doesn't go anywhere. And, and this is on your outline. True freedom comes only from submitting to God and doing his will, not fighting against him. Our problem, mankind's problem, is that instead of seeing these limitations as motivated by God's love, we see them as, as someone owning us. We don't like anyone to own us. We want to be our own boss. And the consequences of this defiance are in verse 2. 
against the Lord and against his anointed. That's who we're fighting against. The last word there, anointed, is the Hebrew word uh, from which the word Messiah comes. And the natural heart of every human is to rebel against the true king. That's our sinful, sin, sin nature, our sinfulness. And verse 3 is, in essence, saying, I want to be my own. Uh, someone said that that's the one thing in hell that everyone has in common. Everyone says, I'm my own boss. And isn't that what happens here and now? When we say we want to be the king of this, even as believers, as this or that area in our lives, we want to turn over everything to God, but we want to hold on to this closet or that closet. We want to, Lord, come into my, the, the, my, my life, the, my house, so to speak, but there's some things I just don't want you to touch. And when that happens, there's hell in relationships. There's hell in marriages. There's hell in our lives. And if you're raising children now, or you have in the past, uh, you know that, that what controls the worldview of every little human is, I'm my own boss. You are not the boss of me. You ever heard your kids or grandkids say that? I remember that one. The battle to get your four-year-old to eat their supper isn't a battle about nutrition and food. It's a battle of kingdoms. They have their kingdom, and they don't want you to touch it. Romans 5.8 says we're enemies with God. And maybe you're thinking, you know what? Most people I know aren't really hostile to God. Hostile? Well, think of it this way. The Bible doesn't say that people are hostile to the idea of God. It says they're hostile to the biblical idea of God. They're antagonistic to the way the Bible describes him. He is the God who says, be holy for I am holy in 1 Peter. And you shall have no other gods before me in Exodus 20. He is the God whose son Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's very exclusive. That's what they rebel against, that exclusivity. It's the God of the Bible who sent Jesus into the world and Jesus shows up and he says in Luke 14, you must, uh, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. What does he mean by that? He means that uh, you must love me so much that your love for others, uh, even your own parents looks like hatred by comparison. That's how much we're to love him. The God that people detest is the one who puts a yoke on us and who says, I own you. I am the creator that you belong to. And he wants us to recognize that. But we learn from Matthew that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The Bible says we battle with God who says, and if you look ahead to verse 8, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the God we reject. You know, I heard about a guy who bought a, a, a white mouse to feed to his pet snake. And he put the little mouse into this big aquarium where the snake was, and uh, the mouse sees the snake and knows he's in trouble. And so he starts covering the snake with wood chips that are in the aquarium until the snake has completely disappeared. And it's like, well, the problem is now gone now that I don't see him anymore. Um, the solution, however, came from the outside when this 
man uh, had pity on this little mouse seeing what he was doing, at least for this meal anyway, for the snake. But no matter how hard we try to cover and deny our sinful nature, it won't work. Sin will eventually wake up from sleeping and shake off the the cover. And the only thing that will keep sin from eating us alive is the saving grace of God in Christ. It's the master's hand at work in our lives. And the truth is that we have absolutely no hope of ever being received by God except through Jesus' death, which is why communion is so central to what we do. Romans 8, 7 says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. In other words, life on this side of eternity is one big unending war of kingdoms. Sin causes us to live selfish lives directed instead of, uh, that are directed instead of to God on ourselves and our rebellion against God. I'm, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I know that as believers, you have seen your hostility to God. And, and that's a good thing because really only a Christian can admit that. And this is uh, on your outline. The only way to become a friend of God is to admit that you're his enemy. That's where we have to start. We think we can be free. We think we can get away from God. Uh, you, you know, who, does, who is Jonah thinking he is when he says he can run from God? He thinks that. Or Adam, who's Adam think he is when he thinks he can hide from God? The sure route to freedom is to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And God will set us free to be the person he created us to be. So freedom isn't just the right to do whatever we want. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to do what God wants us to do. And that leads us to the second voice we hear. And that is the voice of God the Son that says, we have a true king. Starting in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is the only place in the Bible where it says God laughs. And when a human shakes his fist at the creator, it's so absurd that that laughter from God is the only response. The prophet Isaiah put it like this in Isaiah 40, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. That's who our God is. In Acts 13, the apostle Paul is preaching and he applies verse seven in Psalm two to the resurrection. He says in Acts 13, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. So that's the Apostle Paul in Acts 13. And this is what the father quotes. Same thing, same verse from, from Psalm 2 in Jesus, at Jesus' baptism in, in Mark 1. And today God is speaking to the nations and calling us all the nations. And notice here God's heart for the Gentiles. And God's heart for missions. 
You know, we, we pride ourselves in, in, a, in a good way, I think, of being a missions church. And this is the heart of it right here. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It's for all who trust his son. But the day is coming when God will judge. If, if people will not accept God's judgment at the cross, then they'll have to accept God's judgment for their sins. And that's eternal separation from God. Uh, the picture of David's coronation is a picture that ultimately looks forward to the greatest coronation ever of Jesus. The father promised the son complete victory over the nations. And that means that he will reign over king, all the kingdoms as king of kings and lord of lords. Something Satan had, t- had tempted Jesus with in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that? And Jesus refused to yield to the temptation that time. It wasn't the right time. So Jesus' rule as king will be strong. And if someone opposes him, look at verse 9. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like, uh, like, to pieces like pottery. There are a lot of legends about kings that we've read about. That I'm sure that you've read about or heard about. There's the legend of King Arthur. There's Robin Hood. There's the good King Richard. You even have popular modern legends. C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is the king. Or Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. When the true king shows up, everything will blossom. And on and on it goes. And for the countries that don't have royalty left, uh, like our country... Uh, Somebody said in the U.S. here, we just kind of create our own royal line with uh, Hollywood actors, with sports figures. And then someone said, when we crown them kings and queens, we worship them when they hold court. We see an interview and we think, oh, our, our king, our queen. The Bible says we're created to be a part of God's kingdom. And there are so many examples of this in scripture. I think of John 18 Uh, where it says, my kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. And in Revelation 17, John the Apostle again writes, he says, we will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. We sang about this this morning. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. So if we reject the true king, We'll find our own king because everyone was created to have something to worship. We we are worshiping people. We were made to worship something. And you might even not believe intellectually that there is a king in, in God, that he is the king. But whoever, whatever you believe, you will find a king. You will find a savior, small k and small s, if you will. And you will worship somewhere, something in your life. So think about it, the judgment, and and think about Jesus having a kingdom that is not of this world, and God is pleading with us to repent. We've talked about this recently, that that, uh, it was Martin Luther who said we're to live lives of repentance. What does that mean? When When God puts his finger on an area in our lives where we're not making him king, we repent from that. We make him king of that area of our life no matter what area it is. So we repent. We turn to Jesus, who is the true king. And that's the right response today. That's the right response every day. To turn to Jesus 
as king because he is the king of kings. And so finally, the last voice we hear is the voice of the spirit that pleads with us to see that we need a king. We need a king. So the spirit speaks first in verses 10 and 11 and to the kings and the leaders. And and then in verse 12, he addresses all, urging them to trust the son. Therefore, verse 10, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God shows us his grace by saving us before his wrath is revealed. Because the the wrath of God is on those who don't trust the Savior. And then he appeals to the heart and calls for a, a submissive love and a devotion to the king. And what those last three verses are telling us is this, there's no in between. This is what Jesus warned the church at Pergamum about. Remember in the seven churches. Don't compromise. And, and, and you'll either serve and rejoice and kiss the king, so to speak. And if you do that, you're blessed. And if you don't, you'll perish. There's no refuge from the king. This is on your outline. There's only refuge in the king. And so we need the king. We need to be yoked together with the savior whose yoke is easy. And that's the only way for us to have true freedom. You know, in one of his uh, books, Max Lucado uh, describes some of the weak views people have of Christ. And here's what he writes. For some, Jesus is a good luck charm. Uh, The rabbit's foot redeemer. Pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him, you can dangle him from your rear view mirror, glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. Uh, Need help on a quiz? Uh, Pull out the rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four leaf clover. Lucado goes on, for many, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, new and improved spouses, your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around. For others, Jesus is a let's make a deal redeemer. Few demands, no challenges. I'll write Jesus for 52 years a week. I'll be good. I'll go to church. I'll look as nice as I can. I'll endure any sermon you throw at me. In exchange, you give me grace behind pearly gate number three. So the rabbit's foot redeemer, Aladdin's lamp redeemer, let's make a deal redeemer, few demands, no challenges, no need for sacrifice, no need for commitment, sightless and heartless redeemers. Redeemers he concludes, without power. That's not our Redeemer. 
That's not Jesus. That's not how we're to treat him. The Bible says that in every human being, there's amazing potential to become like his son when we come under the yoke of the king, to believe, to obey, to love our king. That means I'm no longer in charge. I I put my ego, myself, off of the throne, and I've put Christ on the throne of my life. I've submitted to his authority. But it's, not, it's a one-time thing when we, are, when we ask him and receive his salvation that he's opened our hearts to. But we know that as believers, it's got to be a daily thing where daily we put ourselves off the throne and daily we put Christ on the throne in our lives. And so we serve the king, we kiss the king, we worship the king. And we know that we're important to him, that he loves us. And then verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Christ is not only God's chosen king, he's also the rightful king in our hearts and in our lives. And so let me just give you some practical ways now that, of what this means to submit to the king. And this is a great outline. We've called this series Praying the Psalms. This is a great outline for you to pray for yourself as, as this next week, as we pray the Psalms together for your own life, for the lives of the people you love. So, you know, maybe you believe that in Jesus in a general way, but you're not treating him as king on a daily basis. So how do we respond? You don't do these things that I'm going to mention here to earn favor with God. But once you have a relationship with Jesus through Christ, Here's how you treat Jesus as king. So first of all, obey the word. You've got it on your outline. Obey the word. He doesn't say, do what I say, then I'll love you. That's not what God says. Jesus says, if you love me, then do what I say. That's how you show your love. So look what the king says. He says, always forgive. Always. It's not a choice. It's a command. We are to be forgiving people. Always tell the truth. Always. Don't envy. Ever. And on and on it goes. And the question that you need to ask yourself is, is Jesus your king or is he just a consultant for you? He wants to be your king. And maybe you're having a hard time forgiving someone. You're holding on to anger. You're holding on to bitterness and you just won't let it go. It's too fun to do. But it will destroy you. And if you obey and forgive, God will bring healing to your life. And if you want to do that and you don't know how, you're stuck Get some help. Come and see me. Go to a professional Christian counselor who will point you to Jesus. Whatever it is, you've got to put yourself in a position where you're forgiving, where where you can get beyond anger in your life. If you're only going to do it because it feels right, then and Jesus is just your consultant. He's not a king. Doesn't always feel right. 
but you do it because God says it. You're being obedient to him. You have to say, not my will, God, but your will be done in my life. And then second uh, thing you've got there is submit to his sovereign rule. Submit to his sovereign rule. Some people may strive to be obedient to what they know God wants them to do, but when God allows unexpected things to come into their lives that are really hard, they get upset. And they say, it isn't right. Look at all I've been doing for you, God, and this is how you treat me. This is what you allow into my life. And they're not treating Jesus as king. I love the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was mistreated and abused by his brothers and were it not for one of them, the kind-heartedness of one of his brothers, Joseph would be dead. But he ends up in prison uh, in a position, and then in a position after he comes out of prison of political leadership. And he has the perfect opportunity to get back at his brothers. They come to him for help and they don't recognize him. And he gets so emotional. Remember at one point he leaves the room. He has to go out of the room. And Joseph's attitude should be one though that is on our own lips. In Genesis 50, you intended this for evil. He says to my brothers, to his brothers, Uh, to harm me, but God intended this for good. So what's happening here? He is submitting to the kingship of God in his life, and that's what we need to do. Joseph is saying, I don't understand what's going on or why, and I'm afraid. But I I know that that you're a loving and compassionate God. And I know that you're gonna make me loving, more loving. You're gonna make me more compassionate. You're gonna humble me through this so I can look like Jesus. And Joseph submits to the fact that his circumstances are purifying him. And so you need to see whatever is going on in your life, whatever is hard for you right now, as God's purifying work in your life. He wants to make you like his son, Jesus. Do you give Jesus the kingship like Joseph? Man, may, may we make that our prayer. You intended this for evil or for harm if someone else is involved. But God, we know you intend it for good. Third thing, trust Jesus alone. Trust in Jesus alone. When it says to kiss the son uh, in verse 12, that means he's all you need. He's all we need. And we're there to worship him alone. Often people come to Christ and there's trouble in their lives. And what sometimes happens is they'll say, you know what, I'll be happy Uh, to become a Christian as long as all these things go well in my life. Or I'm glad to do this service for you, Lord, as long as you do this for me. That's not the way it works with a king. Here's the thing. If you add anything, anything to Jesus as a requirement 
for being happy, whatever you're adding, that's your real king. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's a relationship that somehow God's taken away through death or otherwise. And God is saying, you know what? You want real happiness? Make me your king. That's the only way to have joy. And then finally, expect God to do great things. In verse 11, celebrate his rule with trembling. What does that mean? It means you have a king in your life as a believer in Jesus. Do you expect God to show up and do great things? He's a king. We need to honor him with big requests. It was John Newton who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. We all know that. But John Newton also wrote this. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. So honor God with great requests to build his kingdom. You want to do something for God? Pray that God will give you the boldness and then step out in faith and do it and watch God work. I know some people who are by nature pessimists. I'm sure you do too. The opposite of pessimism, I don't think, is optimism. It's hope. It's hope. And the Bible is a book of hope, and God is the God of all hope. And so we never lose hope. You're praying for someone, maybe you've been praying for them for years and years to come to faith in Christ, and they haven't come yet. Keep praying, because God is the God of miracles. He's the God of big requests. So you, do you treat him like a, a king or do you see the problems or the challenges in your life and just say, well, that's just the way things are always going to be or that's just the way I'm always going to be? No, we don't say that. Jesus came to be king. He wants to be king in your life. His kingship is your salvation. But we work, our, we work out our salvation every day. And so he's our salvation every day. And at the same time we rejoice that he is king of kings, we know he's going to return as king of kings and lord of lords. Hallelujah. So that brings us back to the beginning of Psalm 1, where it says, blessed is the man. Who is the man? Remember who the man is? It's Jesus. And we said last week that... um, That's what we said last week. And in this week in Psalm 2, he's identified as the king. And we find true happiness only when we take refuge in him. Only when we are under the shelter of his rule. You know, there's this uh, lady, Janelle McMillan. You don't know the name, but she was the last person to be rescued after 9-11. Which in one week will be 20 one years, right? Uh, she'd been trapped in the rubble of what remained of the Twin Towers for 27 hours uh, before the last firefighters heard her calling and rescued her. 30-year-old, single mother, Catholic background. Uh, she'd worked for the Port Authority for nine months when the Trade Center went down. The North Tower collapsed. Her job was on the 64th floor. But there was no 64th floor after the collapse. 
And then her vocation became trying to stay in life, uh, trapped between floors of twisted steel and smoking debris, and she was hoping for a miracle. Um, she had grown up Catholic, Roman Catholic. She had a religious background, but she was far from God. And as she later told reporters, I'm going to read this, she said, uh, her head was pinned between two pieces of concrete, her legs sandwiched by pieces of a stairway, her toes had gone numb hours ago, her right hand was pinned under her leg, only her left hand was free. So her thought went to her 14-year-old daughter, and her first prayer was, Lord, help him just to find my body so my daughter will know that I died here and that she can bury me. But as time went on, she became a little bit more bold. And she revised her prayer, and she asked the Lord that if she had to die, that she could at least make it to the hospital so she could see her daughter one last time. But as time went on, the faith kept bubbling up inside of her. And she revised her prayer, and she asked the Lord uh, to rescue her, that she could be found alive. And she said, and I quote, I was praying to God, God, please save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life and live for you. And then she remembers praying this over and over and over again. God, please save my life. If you give me a second chance, I promise I will live for you and live to do your will. She had no idea how many times she'd repeated that, but after 27 hours, she was rescued by firefighters who saw a firefighter who had died, and that led them to her. And she found her refuge in Christ. Even though she had turned her back on him, even though she had rebelled, when she submitted to the Lord, she found a place of safety. And that's the point for all of us. There is no safer place to be than in the hand of God. So you put yourself and you leave yourself in his hands. No matter what you've done, no matter how badly you've rebelled against God in the past, you can still find a place of safety and joy in him. All you need to do is submit to your king, Jesus. Initially, for your salvation, say, Lord, come into my life. I want you to be my savior and my Lord, but then on a daily basis, we submit to him. We stop running from him. We turn towards him. We run to him. And then we find true freedom in his rule in our lives. So don't listen to the voice of rebellion that we all have within us. Know that Jesus is king. Worship him. Honor him. Trust him. Let's pray. Well, how do we pray this psalm? We begin like this. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that as we think about these things, because it's your word, that your spirit would come and open our hearts to how we should be living these things out in our lives. I pray that everyone here as they come, that we would all kiss the king, that we would bow to his rule in our lives, that we would love him for that, And know that you're changing our lives. Father, forgive us for wanting to do things our own way. 
cover up the snake of sin in our lives. Show us that submitting ourselves to you and serving you is indeed our perfect freedom. Father, we love you so much and we just commit now the rest of this day to you in Jesus' name, amen. And this is from Psalm 112, praise the Lord, hallelujah, blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments, amen. God bless you, have a great day, and please greet some people around you, take advantage of those name tags.